News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in the Catskills with Professor Christina Greer, who's celebrating her birthday week in an undisclosed location. Hello, youngster. (laughs) Hi there, Harry. Hey. In a few minutes, you're going to hear from Charles Farrell, a jazz genius who's played with the likes of Ornette Coleman and Sonny Rollins, and who gave up performing music to take up fixing fights for the mob in a conversation with me and Vice Editor Tim Marchman about his new memoir, Low Life. But first, a little NYC business. Eric Adams, just back from visiting Joe Biden's White House to talk about gun violence and crime, had a joint press conference on Wednesday with Governor Andrew Cuomo, whose endorsement Adams declined to say he'd accept during the primary. But there they were, you know, right next to each other, supporting each other, although Adams stressed it was not an endorsement, as uh, Adams again declared himself the face of the Democratic Party which I suppose would make uh, Andrew Cuomo his code holder. Now, Chrissy, <laughs> I know that Sally Goldenberg, who's going to be joining us next week, gave a long look in Politico New York at the people Adams is bringing with him, including current Brooklyn Democratic boss and de Blasio ally Frank Carone. Uh, how do you think Adams is doing so far? And what are you looking ahead to You know, over, over these coming months as he uh, makes the rounds but doesn't yet have power? Yeah, well, I can't wait to have Sally on to sort of get in the weeds with some of the the potential deputy mayors and folks that he could appoint and ask. Just because, I mean, I think right now Eric Adams is playing his cards pretty strategically. I mean, you're already chit-chatting with Joe Biden about gun violence, um, which a lot of New Yorkers are concerned about, you know, whether it's real in their neighborhoods or just perceived, but it's still something that's... Uh, a New York City and also a national conversation. I think situating himself where he's not antagonistic to Andrew Cuomo, and he knows that Andrew Cuomo needs a few things. He needs some New York City support. Let's be real, 100. He needs some Black people to support him. The optics are real. And the fact that Eric Adams, you know, isn't pulling a de Blasio, right? We know de Blasio would roll in, use this opportunity to say, you know, Andrew Cuomo's weakened, so I'm just going to try and steamroll him as like a mayor-elect. Where Eric Adams is like, slow down. First of all, this man controls the purse strings. He's been in this business for a long time, as have I. So we know a lot of the same people. I'm sure they have a lot of mutual friends and associates and enemies. And there's always an opportunity to sort of start fresh, right? I I think someone like Eric Adams is, is recognizing that each position he gets into, it's a new opportunity to make some new friends. And he's going to need Andrew Cuomo. He's not Mike Bloomberg, right? Mike Bloomberg came in and was like, if you don't give me the money, I'll figure out my own money. And also I'm a billionaire. So like, you're, you're also going to fall back just a little bit. De Blasio never got that memo. And we have eight years of antagonistic relationships and two men where I'm just like, if you guys don't just like take off your t-shirts and fight it out, I don't know what we're going to do. So I think Adams isn't coming in guns a blazing, you know, let me try and strong arm Andrew Cuomo. It's like, let's sniff each other out. And it may be that ultimately they have an antagonistic relationship, but something tells me they won't. They're both deal makers. They're both quasi bullies when they need to be. They both understand New York City and New York State. And I think if I'm being generous, both of them actually do care about the citizens of New York in their own special way. 
how they articulate it is sometimes off-putting for some or confusing for others. But I do think that the common denominator between the two of them is they know how to get a deal by hook or crook. They want to get a deal. They want to look good. They might steamroll you in the process. And they care about New York. If those are a common denominator, we actually have a good place to work from. And I think both of them know how to work, which we can't always say about our current 109th mayor. So to me, the big question ahead of Eric Adams actually assuming power next year is what happens when Tish James' report drops. There, there is a legislative investigation in the assembly of Cuomo, but that's plainly being slow rolled to benefit him and to play for time. And James is the, uh, the big shoe here. And that could change things considerably with how permanent our three-term governor seems mm-hmm. once, uh, w- once we get to the end of that. And if this is who Eric Adams is going to have to be dealing with or Andrew Cuomo is about to be exiting the stage or it's not clear and how do I want to play this? Like, like the powers that be sometimes are not the powers that will be, you know? Right. But I think Eric Adams has been around long enough where he can read he can read some leaves, right? I mean, I think a lot of it will depend on who the Democratic primary challenger will be for Andrew Cuomo. Is it going to be someone who's hyper-progressive and will, again, get 33% and Andrew Cuomo will just bat them away, like, thanks for wasting my time and the taxpayer's money, right? Or is it going to be someone who isn't as progressive? Because keep in mind, Democrats in New York State are not leftists by and large, And oftentimes, I think if we're being honest, some of those votes for Cynthia Nixon and Zephyr Teachout weren't for Cynthia Nixon and Zephyr Teachout. They were against Cuomo, which is a fundamental difference. So if the Democrats can get themselves together and choose someone who's slightly to the left of Cuomo, so they're not a progressive threat to, say, some of the purple-ish Democrats that we have upstate or the purple-ish Democrats we have in New York City, but they give them another realistic option— then that puts Eric Adams in an interesting position, especially if he knows this person or has worked with this person in the past or if this person can promise him something for New York City. It's a gamble, but this is where I think that Eric Adams, Andrew Cuomo personality style will be fascinating because if they're friends and friendly, I think that they can be a real powerful force for good. I know I'm on some weird optimistic kick these days, but I do think because they both have this kind of steamroll type personas and that's how they practice politics if they're on the same team we get what we want we get a lot of what we want if they're not then i think it's it's just it's an all-out brawl and this is you know we've seen the de blasio cuomo fights and like that's not even really a fight this seems like it would be a street fight like queens versus brooklyn Everybody hide in your homes. What is happening? Um, And I hope it doesn't get to that. But I do think that Eric Adams is, listen, he's clearly played the game thus far pretty well. And you don't get there underestimating people. You don't get there ignoring people. And especially since the Cuomos have been a fixture for so long, he knows enough folks who know how Cuomo operates. So you you step to him with that, right? And so I, I think it'll start off with a lot of carrots, and honey, and if it needs to turn to sticks and wasps, both of them are prepared to do it. So there's an old boxing adage that styles make fights. And it's going to be interesting to see what this matchup feels like 
next year, mm-hmm. assuming Cuomo is running. Clearly, Cuomo plans to be running. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, though, Harry, I, mean, think of, I, I agree with you fundamentally, right? Because if we think about, say, someone like de Blasio, who in many ways was on the same page with Cuomo on a lot of things, but because they just couldn't get their style and their personalities together, it's like, why are we fighting over things that you all fundamentally agree upon? Right? Why are we undercutting one another? You're both Democrats. Because rhetorical agreement breaks down when you're talking about money. Mm-hmm. And de Blasio won, and he said to Cuomo, you got to raise taxes to give me money. Mm-hmm. And Cuomo said, you're not going to do that to me. I'm the boss here. Right. And has truly hated him ever since. It's interesting because de Blasio, supportive of Adams, uh, they've apparently reportedly been talking since Adams' victory about people to bring in. Um, to an Adams administration, and yet here's Adams next to Cuomo at a presser that that is built around you know shitting on the state of New York City under this mayor, mm-hmm. and saying we 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 need competence, we need to do better, things are falling apart. And of course, De Blasio, who'd love to run against Cuomo, and Cuomo should be so lucky, is leaving the scene, and Cuomo is saying, I'm not going anywhere. And Eric Adams, who intends to be mayor for eight years, you know, as as reason to uh, not not pick that fight early on, and you know, sense enough, sense enough not to as well. I just, Harry, are we really talking about De Blasio versus Cuomo in a primary? He I know, I know that's the word on the curb. I know that he needs a job. I know that he's been in elected office for so long, and this is what he's done, and this is what he knows how to do. But I just think. I'm like, de Blasio, if you're listening, because I think you've done some great things for New York, really appreciate pre-K, universal pre-K, 3K, yada, yada, IDNYC, you know, you've had some hits. I'm appreciative. I need you to swing through Long Island for five minutes so you will know for a fact that it's a bad idea for you to run for governor. The people in Long Island, like, (laughs) and not saying they're all of New York State, but I need you to just... Hitch a ride with Jumani as he's hanging out upstate, right? Like, I need you to go to some towns, blue towns, and have people tell you to your face what they've been telling me when I travel around New York State about how they despise you. You're not even their mayor, and they have such strong, visceral reactions to you. I mean, the people in Long Island, you would think, (laughs) were under a de Blasio regime for 85 years. There's absolutely no way that they're going to let this man get anywhere near 33% if they can help it. So I just feel like there are a lot of ways that de Blasio can make himself a public servant in another way if he feels like working. So speaking of mismatched fights and how to sell them to the public, let's play this interview, which I, I think is fascinating, with Charles Farrell. And if you stick around until the end, if you start listening, I hope you will. You'll get to hear him play some piano, which is really something. Let's jump right in. I'm joined now by my old friend, Tim Marchman, who's the features editor for a Motherboard, and by Charles Farrell, who's the author of Low Life, a memoir of jazz, fight fixing, and the mob. Uh, hi, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me on, Harry. Thanks for coming, and uh, w- welcome, Charles. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Harry. Good to, good to see you. Good to see you, Tim. It's, uh, it's good to see your face. Um, we've corresponded over email before, 
and talked on the phone, but I, I don't think we've ever uh, looked each other eye to eye before as we are now on Zoom. So, Charles, this, this is a pretty incredible book uh, about your life, a little bit about your uh, young life, then about playing jazz in uh, a series of uh, often mob-run nightclubs and with some uh, pretty famous names, and then, and then fixing boxing fights. And a lot of this came out, and this is actually where the book ends, uh, when you started writing about this pretty recently, I think beginning with the piece for Deadspin. So having led this uh, peripatetic life, what, what led you to, uh, to start writing about it? Uh, and what were your expectations for writing at that point? And, and, and what are they now that you've uh, published this book? Well, uh, you know, I never thought in terms of writing anything, but I got invited to be a keynote speaker um, at Trinity College in Dublin. And I didn't even know what a keynote speaker was, but, you know, I was sort of briefed on what I needed to do. And I wound up preparing this long piece about fight fixing. And I think what, what happened is a, a writer named Brian Tui, I think that's the guy who did it, put, put me in touch initially with Tommy Craig's at Deadspin and with Tim. And that piece got published. And weird stuff began to happen. Within a couple of weeks, I had a literary agent and a theatrical agent, and I'd been offered an option on this story. And I started getting paid to write. So I figured, all right, well, this, this might be a kind of interesting trajectory. Let me, let me see what what happens with this? So that's why that's how I wound up starting to write, and I did that for a while. Then somebody offered me a book deal. They, uh, you know, actually I was going to use a collection of, of essays because I had a book uh, book's worth, which which you guys all paid for. Thank you. But my publisher wanted something different. He wanted something more personal, so he suggested a memoir, and I got paid to do it. And that's really why I did it. I wouldn't have written a book. Um, and I was thinking in terms of options. So, you know, I wrote, I wrote the most serious book I know, knew how to write. And I wrote a, an honest book. And I wrote the best book I could, was capable of writing. It's a, it's a great book. Thank you. It, it, it seems like a, a theme in your uh, memoir and your work that you're always trying to do the absolute best work you can and really sort of regardless of some commercial considerations. And also that some of your decisions are, are, as you're writing about them, seem to be guided by, by, by money. And I'm curious how, how those two things do or don't fit together, as you see it. Um, I think about money too much. I mean, I, I, ironically, the condition that I would aspire to, if I could, is being broke. Being broke is the thing I like best. Uh, unfortunately, I'm in debt, which is a completely different set of conditions. So I, I war against this kind of overwhelming debt all the time. So money becomes a major consideration when it shouldn't be. But if I could be broke, I would be thrilled. Uh, I would rather be broke than have money. But I only know how to do a couple of things. And one of the things I do really seriously is play piano. 
And I just decided years ago that, um, you know, I'm viable in many, many ways, but I'm not viable in that way. Um, I only play what I want to play. You know, after years of playing music for a living, I mean, playing, you know, whatever the market would bear. Many years ago, I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. And I work hard at playing piano. So that's the one thing I don't play any games with. Um, with writing, luckily, I only can really write about stuff I know about. So I only get offers that have to do with subjects I know about. So I don't have to worry about compromising or, you know, in, in a sense, I don't have the kind of skill necessary to be uh, a flexible writer. I've got this thing I can do, and that's what I do. And uh, so I'm freed of the option of having to make compromises that I'm probably technically incapable of making anyway. So one of the most fascinating stories in a book full of really fascinating stories from an impossibly interesting life is at one point, you're maybe 20, 21, um, you get a chance to play with Sonny Rollins. Right. And you tell this, uh, you know, you tell this amazing story about how there was a song he wanted you to play. You weren't familiar with it. So he, he kind of sits down very close, looks you in the eye and starts sing, singing this very tender love song to you. And you're describing how you're working out, how you're going to change the chords. Um, am I going to have to transpose this? All this kind of theoretical stuff is going in your head while Sonny Rollins is looking at, looking at you in the eye and singing. Um, you then explain that the mystery, which you know, you've described of why he played with such lousy musicians was answered when he offered to have you join his group and the money wasn't good enough. And you said, now, I, you know, now I, now I know why he was playing with these, with these third grade players. He wasn't paying them anything. That was a money decision in the book. Um, you express, I don't even know, maybe you'd characterize it as regret, maybe not, but you think about the fact that if you'd played with Sonny Rollins for a year, even making less than you were uh, playing clubs, that might've turned out well for you. So rounding around to the question, I guess that's another way of asking, you know, the question Harry has, how has that um, desire to not compromise artistically and that desire to not compromise commercially in, in music to get paid, you know, what you're worth, or what you want, how, how those impacted each other. And to ask a, a, you know, a little more pointed question on that. Do you outright regret not joining the Sonny Rollins show uh, at that point and seeing what would have happened? Um, that's a really good question. One of the things I, I figured out from when I was young, I was playing with, with guys who grew grew into being hotshots. You know, they weren't named players at the time, but they all became named players. And when I knew them, we were all teenagers. And their goal in life was to play with Miles. That was it. And most of them wound up doing it. But I thought that's really a very, very low ceiling. I mean, you know, in a way, it's it's a kind of lofty ambition because Miles had great bands. But, um, you know, you're working for somebody else. You're playing somebody else's music. And at best, you're going to be kind of a well-known jazz musician. 
And I thought that that's not very interesting. That's not very good. Um, what I didn't see at that time, you know, when I was 20, 21 years old, is I didn't see the big picture. I didn't understand that doing this for a year probably would have opened the door much faster for doing whatever it is that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But I was absolutely certain from the time I was a kid that if I wanted to be a famous jazz musician, I could do it. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure what the upside of that would have been. I mean, I still think I could have done that. and I, Maybe can still do it if I want to, but I'm not sure what the point is. So, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I I didn't want to play in bad bands, and Sonny had a terrible band. Um, you know, that didn't seem like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, I, I probably could have been more prudent. I probably could have <laughs> said, Look, you know, let me sacrifice a year of playing music I don't like very much with musicians I don't think much of to get where I need to go faster. Mm-hmm. So I think both Tim and I have a habit sometimes of starting in the middle uh, to step back a minute and maybe start in the middle from the start. Do, do you want to uh, just quickly take listeners through the, uh, the the contours of your life, maybe just beginning in your 20s, and uh, playing, and then the shift into boxing, and uh, where you are now, uh, so that they, they have a sense of that arc as we're having this conversation. And and before that, uh, you know, your childhood, because you know, one one thing that I think a lot of people will be, uh, <laughs> you know, really amazed by reading the book is is how young you started as an adult, and how soon you got into you know, a career as a musician and, you know, contact with the demimond that would kind of define uh, what you were doing professionally for, for a very long time. Well, yeah, you know, I kind of bounced back and forth between music and various forms of gangsterism from the time I was just a kid. Again, it's, it's partially because I only had aptitude for a couple of things. So I did the things I, I knew how to do, but um, I wanted to start an adult life. That seemed very important to me for whatever reason. So, um, you know, I left home early and I lived on my own early and I left school, you know, before you're legally allowed to do it. I mean, we're talking the age of the age of 12 and eighth grade, just to, just to make clear to people. I mean, we're talking very, very young that you set out to become your own person. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had people talk to me about that and said that that's so improbable, and I'm not even sure I believe it. You know, people who don't know me say, "Well, you know," and I said, "Well, just just add four years, and it it goes from being sort of unbelievable to unlikely but doable. People do it all the time, but if you come from a family that plays music, as I do, of four generations and maybe more of professional musicians." That's a, being a professional musician is quite an easy thing to do. And I grew up in a culture, Boston in the 1960s, which had a very, very lively, very healthy music scene. So there were places to work. So playing clubs was, was easy. And in a sense, you play clubs if you're capable of playing clubs. It's not a, it's not a factor of how old you are. It's a factor of whether you can do the work. And I could do the work. So 
I started gigging at clubs when I was about 12. But I also had a, an uncle who was a monster. And he introduced me in this kind of tangential way to fighters and mobsters. And I already knew a lot about boxing. So I got involved with uh, telling mob guys who to bet on in fights. So even though fight fixing is something that came much later in my life, I got a taste of that in my um, either teens or maybe even preteens. You know, so I was sort of bouncing back and forth again between these two things. And that led me eventually into first playing jazz and then working in mob clubs, which is something I never expected to do. But they paid. One of the things I figured out I could do is if I had the nerve to ask for twice as much money as the other players, I could get it if I could deliver. And so I did that. And the clubs were incredibly bizarre. And sometimes they were dangerous and sometimes they were funny and they were often ridiculous, but they were incredible background. Musically, they were, they were a great background because I had to be able to play anything for anybody at any time in any key under any circumstances. And I had to be able to read people really well. And I had to be able to, you know, cool out tempers. And I mean, there are just a lot of skills that you needed to do in, in that kind of work. So that's what I did, you know, again, until I was in my later 20s, at which point I just completely burned out with music. I'd been playing music from the time I was 12 in public until I was about 27 and I was doing seven nights a week and I was recording and I was doing TV and I was rehearsing and practicing. And I didn't particularly like being in the public eye. So it was tricky. And so I figured out other ways to make money. At the very end of the uh, section of low life about your playing career and about these uh, pretty intense mob joints that you're playing in. Uh, there's a story about Ahmad Jamal coming in to play for a couple of weeks, people being very unhappy with him because his playing had advanced and he didn't sound like Ahmad Jamal anymore that they wanted, you know, Bananica. And then right after conveying that, you, you told the story about, about leaving uh, at your last gig and uh, this, this owner trying to stiff you. At that point, I, I mean, could you play the Ahmad Jamal they wanted better than Ahmad Jamal? And did you have a sense of what it is you wanted to be playing uh, if left to your own devices? Or was it all sort of confined by, uh, by circumstance and uh, the demands of these clubs and the owners and the singers and the patrons? Well, that particular club was a jazz club. It wasn't a mob club. Although, you know, even that is, is a, a little bit tricky. But anyway... Um, that was that was around the time I decided that I just wasn't going to play jazz anymore. But Ahmed um, had evolved. You know, he, he was one of the very few jazz musicians who had a lot of mainstream success in the 1950s. So he actually had hit records and he was making a lot of money. And, you know, he's a great player. But he developed and he'd he'd come up with this there was a lot of illusion in his playing. I mean, he, he understood American popular, popular music better than almost any 
jazz musician ever. So what he did is he wound up turning it into a kind of cultural codification where he just used reference points and nothing else, you know? And so he would play a tune and there would be a phrase that would strike him as culturally important. And he would just repeat the phrase and leave out the tune, understanding that the audience knew what the tune was. I mean, it was this really evolved way of playing. It was brilliant, but the audience didn't like it. You know, they wanted to hear his hit records from 20 years earlier. So the guy who booked the club asked me if I knew how to play like Ahmed Jamal. And I said, I can play exactly like Ahmed Jamal. And he said, do me a favor. For the couple of weeks Ahmed Jamal is in here, be Ahmed Jamal so that people will actually sit and listen to you play. So that's what I did. I, it just sounded exactly like Ahmed Jamal. Now, could Ahmed Jamal play like Ahmed Jamal? Yes, absolutely he could. But why would he want to? Um, I didn't want to. You know, I did it as a favor. But that's coincidentally around the time that I stopped playing music in public. And that may have been a factor. So one, one of the things that I think really ties together um, jazz and boxing in this book and that I just find endlessly fascinating is the way you describe people of real skill and real technique using that skill and using that technique, not for their highest ends, but to put on something that will be useful or that the public wants to see. Like there's a, there's a line in here when you're playing with a guy named Rick Ricardo and there's a hilarious story about how you end up taking him out of a key he can sing in so as to end his uh, long night of singing that he's been trying to prolong so as to avoid getting attacked by a mob fixer uh, who's out to give him some consequences for owing money. But you say in there, we're playing terrible music for terrible people. And later in your career, you're describing how boxers are they're put against fundamentally mismatched opponents and you describe the mechanics of telling someone, Hey, we're going to have a fight. We're going to put on a show, but you know, my guy can't take this fight if he's going to get hurt, you know, he'll, he'll lose, but he can't get, he can't get worked over. You know, you could kill him and a boxer will tell you, I understand what we're doing here. And we go through all that. So you have, you have people who are, you know, like you or some of the boxers you're involved in, we're performing at a very high level and using everything they've, you know, trained for and practiced for to do objectively lousy stuff, like put on uh, fixed fights or, you know, play the bad music people in the clubs want to hear. The third pillar of the book, the, the kind of talking about the mechanisms of gangsterism is it's a little bit of a bridge between there but it's not somewhere where I have as clear an understanding of what people with skill can do as opposed to what they do do. And I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit of, of that. You know, in a sense, skill is skill. It's, it's, it, it, you know, it's an incredibly fungible thing. You can use it however you want. And I think what you need to be able to do is assess what the situation is on the ground, whatever it is and decide what works best for you in that situation. So, for example, 
you know, at one point I'm managing Leon Spinks, who clearly must have been, you know, a skilled practitioner of professional boxing. He was the heavyweight champion, beat Muhammad Ali. He's a gold medalist. But his utility at this point had nothing to do with prize fighting or, uh, or little to do with it. And so in a situation like that, and I think, again, this can carry over to music just as easily. And the situation that you, you know, described with Rick Ricardo is one of those times where you take what you can do and you figure out another use for it. Because at its most evolved level, it will do you no good. In context, it will do you no good. So, you know, I mean, if I can sight read a Scriabin piano sonata and I'm playing at the Kings and Queens, you know, in, in Chelsea, Massachusetts, um, among mobsters, that will do me no good. But those skills will still do me a lot of good. And in boxing, the same thing is, is true. There are people who are very good at what they do, but their circumstances don't favor their being able to do it to the best of their ability for a number of different reasons. That's very complex and it's very nuanced. But there are times when you find those situations and you adjust what you do to conform to the requirements of the gig. I don't know. If the, I don't know if that answers your question. No, that that completely answers the question. I think one thing I'm curious about is how, because in both of these spheres, you know, you were seeing criminal elements working. How did their skill uh, or ability to adapt to a situation manifest itself? Well, surprisingly enough, one of the things I learned with being a criminal and living with criminals and dealing with criminals is that most of them are pretty awful at what they do. You know, um, they rely on people who are better than they are to to handle stuff. I was, you know, there's, I mean, I have to say there's a kind of hierarchy, at least in my experience, among various forms of mobsters and by far the worst are the mafia, you know, because the mafia now has gone from being, you know, a a legitimate business in the sense that the people who were in the mob really knew what they were doing years ago, and they thought in terms of business. So practicality was sort of the main order of the day. But as mobsters became the sons of mobsters and then the sons of the sons of mobsters, they started to learn their business by watching The Sopranos, you know, by watching The Godfather. It was all trapping. And and it was cinematic. And it was excessively violent. And it favored attitude over practicality. So I would say that, you know, to a great degree, those guys don't learn how to do anything. You know, if they're lucky, they find people who do know how to do things. And those people do it. Um, the Irish mob were better than the um, mafia. The Irish mobs, they were, they were more straightforward. They were more focused on what they were needed to do. Um, they were more dangerous. They were tougher guys. Their problem was that, um, again, this is just in my experience, there were issues of honor 
with them that superseded everything else. And, you know, so, I mean, the, the Irish monsters I knew in Boston, for example, were involved in the troubles. So they did a lot of gun running to Belfast and their, their participation in Belfast superseded everything else that they did to the detriment of their business, which I thought was interesting. And then there are the Russian mob who are infinitely more capable and smarter and tougher and more dangerous and more treacherous and better at what they do than the mafia or the Irish mob, largely because they, they come up in a culture where those are survival skills. You know, you, you have to be just unbelievably good at what you do just to make, you know, just to get by. And um, in a sense, those are the guys I liked working with best, but they were also the guys who scared me most. So you're not dealing with a, a self-perpetuating uh, bureaucracy. You're dealing with people who are doing work because they need to get paid and they need to do it well to ensure they can succeed. That and people who are curious about things. And so they're evolving and they're adapting. You know, I mean, they, they adapt culturally. You know, they adapt in all kinds of ways. I mean, the mafia, for example, doesn't adapt which is one of the reasons why the mafia has a lot less power now than it did, you know, in the 1940s or 50s. But the Russians do. And you never know where you are with them, which is pretty interesting. And you also have to understand, I mean, for example, with the mafia, you know they're going to try and steal whatever it is that you're telling. That's what they're going to do. So you have to say to them in the very beginning, look, you're going to try and steal what I do. And you can do that if you want. I'm giving it to you for free. But you can do it once, and then I'm going to stop working for you. And tomorrow you're going to you're going to have no idea what you what to do. So it's dumb to do that. And sometimes mm-hmm. they believe you, and they believe you for a while, and then they don't believe you. You know, and if they do it on their own, they fuck it up. Uh, this will always happen. But the Russians really pay attention to what you do. Uh, on the other hand, the Russians, if you're doing it right, they say, "Okay, good. This guy knows what he's doing. We'll we'll work with him." But, I, you know, I, I was surprised at the sort of lack of skill that I found when dealing in illegal activity. People were just not very good at what they did. So speaking of a lack of skill, at one point in the book, uh, fairly far along in your boxing and fixing career, you're talking about New York and the boxing world. This is a podcast called FAQ NYC, and you've got you've got a pretty rough read here. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit of it. New York was where an airstats thug like Jimmy Breslin could become an institution, where Customata would be mistaken for a wise old man instead of spotted for the chicken hawk he was, a place where Bert Sugar wouldn't be told to shut up for a second and take the fucking cigar out of his mouth in a public place, where Rudy Giuliani could be the mayor instead of locked in a uh, padded cell. And you go on from there sort of, sort of critically about these uh, puffed up New York guys, managers and fighters who weren't particularly great and were subject to emotional pressure because there weren't many spots available at the top. And those guys were all technically shaky. They made them a touchy and easily rattled bunch. And you end up by saying that people in other cities as you're trying to set up a fight and, and use uh, uh, New York's puffery to your advantage, 
people in other cities hearing that the word was coming directly from the Big Apple uh, would confer legitimacy on it. So I'm curious if you can talk a bit about your experience uh, with New York and uh, the boxing world there, and uh, also about uh, New York puffery and uh, how you've experienced that in this fine city of mine. Well, it is a fine city. I, I, you know, I like New York. I, you know, again, it's it's a question of a business being conducted that has changed, that that the circumstances that surround it are not the same as they once were, and it, but its practitioners don't understand that. So, for example, in the 1930s and 1940s, New York was a hotbed of boxing because there were clubs, there were places where you could fight, and so there were. You know, there were an abundance of great trainers and, you know, and and great matchmakers. But those conditions don't exist anymore. And once again, you get people who are looking at a at a theatrical rendering of jobs that really did exist. And New York was rife with that. You know, there were guys who talked like movie versions of fight trainers and fight managers. And that's nonsense. And these guys didn't know anything about boxing. And yet they were, you know, I mean, they were using people like Costamato or or Teddy Atlas as their models. And these guys don't know anything, but they talk like movie versions of, you know, of fight guys. And so they become fight guys. And, you know, in a sense, it, it parallels what I was saying about the mafia. And so it was it was actually a pretty good situation because you could take advantage of it so easily Um, because these guys were all so insecure and they were so inept. And, you know, so, I mean, I had a heavyweight at this point, a guy named Fernelli Felice, Dominican heavyweight, who had great talent and he didn't amount to anything in the boxing business for complex reasons. But I made him for a short time the talk of the New York boxing scene just by talking about him in a certain way and just by putting him in the ring in Gleason's, which is a highly visible place to put against somebody who had a reputation. But I, I could see weakness. I could see how easily that could be undone. And if it, was, if it was something that I let my fighter do for a short period of time before, you know, some aleatory factor, you know, could undo it, he would look sensational. And this beginner who had had one pro fight, everyone think, oh, he's the next heavyweight champion. And of course, I'd say, yeah, he's the next heavyweight champion, and he's going to be the first Hispanic heavyweight champion, and he's going to be the first guy who can speak fluent Spanish and fluent English. I mean, you know, you do all the marketing stuff. And the mob were completely taken with this guy. I mean, we we had all kinds of things on the line for him. And again, it's just a question of, knowing what you really have to be able to do as opposed to, you know, the, the kind of, uh, you know, tinsel that goes along with, with nothing. Speaking of that tinsel for just a second, uh, can we talk a little bit about Tyson, Mike Tyson and uh, Peter McNeely and his 80 odd seconds of glory and uh, how that played out and your role in that fight and, and, and some of the other characters involved. I'll just add for, for a New York point of reference, this was right after Iron Mike was released from prison following his rape conviction and was actually picked up 
and driven there by then New York City, I believe, police lieutenant, now very likely next mayor, Eric Adams. It's interesting, right? Right. Um, I had access to Don King through my friend Al Braverman. Al Braverman was Don King's director of boxing, and he was one of the three people who brought King into boxing. Now, King is not a boxing guy. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy, but he's also somebody who leaves certain decisions to other people. And one of the people he left decisions to was Al Braverman. And Al Braverman was my best friend in the boxing business. So I, I had access to him in terms of matchmaking. And at one point, I wanted Mitch Green, who was my fighter, to fight Tyson. And I thought we had that settled. I thought we could do that. And for Mitch Green managed to somehow fuck up something that, you know, couldn't be fucked up, but he did it. So we, we had this other guy, my friend Vin Vecchioni, was managing a prize fighter named Peter McNeely. Now, to explain Peter McNeely, one of the things you have to understand is that the Moby Dick of boxing is a white heavyweight. You know, it, it, it's uh, boxing is an incredibly racist business, and boxing fans, you know, they look for a white heavyweight. Now, Mike Tyson is the biggest money maker in sports history at this point, but Mike Tyson can't fight. He'd been a very good fighter. But he had dissipated over the years and he was in prison. And I think, I believe he was in prison because Don King set it up that he would go to prison, which is a really smart move because Tyson is self destructing. So his marketability is about to be undone over some nonsense, over, you know, like a Buster Douglas or something worse, which is in the end what happened to him. So you got to protect him, you got to put him on ice, and you got to build up public interest in him. The best way to do it is to put him away for a few years. So I'm friends with Ben Vecchioni. I'm friends with Al Braverman. And we got this guy, Peter McNeely, who really is not much of a fighter. He's just a tough kid who has been mashed well. And we get it. I fly Vecchioni into New York to Al's office. And we cut a deal within a couple of hours to have McNeely be Actually, first, McNeely was supposed to be the heavyweight champion when Tyson got out. The, the deal was supposed to be for Tyson to win the title back in his first fight back after prison. And so they signed Peter McNeely to fight Oliver McCall, who was the heavyweight champion. And the idea was that McNeely would beat McCall in a fixed fight. Now, McCall had a history of doing business before, but he was a really unstable guy. And he was unbelievably dangerous. So if he wanted to, he could have knocked out, you know, McNeely or Tyson or McNeely and Tyson at the same time. You know, whatever he wanted to do, he could do. So we had a, we, there was actually a, a contract signed at 30 Rock. And King saw McNeely and McCall up on the dais and thought, nope, this is not going to work. We can't trust this guy. And that's going to unsettle our plans. It doesn't matter whether Tyson's the heavyweight champion of the world. Who cares? You know, people are going to want to see him. So we won't give McNeely the title. We'll just give him the fight, which is exactly what happened. I was living in exile in Puerto Rico at the time. The mob was out to kill me. So I was hiding. 
But I, I got a phone call the night before the fight from a guy I knew who told me, a friend of ours, you know, and friend is a loaded term, just made a million dollar bet that the fight wouldn't go a full round. He thought you might be interested in knowing that. Oh, I know. I take it back because it wasn't a full round. It was, I, I thought about making a fight, a bet if I could, that the fight wouldn't go a full round. It was, it was 90 full seconds, 90 seconds. And it's not a fixed fight, by the way. That fight was not fixed in the sense that both fighters were fighting to the best of their ability. But Finn Vecchioni stepped into the ring at 89 seconds, which forced <laughs> disqualification. And uh, a couple of days later, I got a phone call from the same, actually from Vin. And he said, I've got something for you. Come to the house. And I said, I'm in Puerto Rico. I'm, you know, he said, well, just send somebody you trust. And I did. And uh, my son was put through college for having helped him, you know. So, I mean, that, you know, to me, that was sort of the greatest boxing move I've ever seen, maybe the greatest wise guy move I ever saw um, to step into the ring at 89 seconds and get your money. Because you have to think it through. It's not just a question of doing it, which takes, you know, a lot of nerve in and of itself. You have to figure out what the ramifications of doing it are. Because everybody said, wait a minute, something's wrong with this, right? They're, why would he do this? The fighter's up and he's fighting and he's okay. Why would you stop this? And so the commission holds up first and they're going to stop. You know, I mean, it's, it's a treacherous thing to do. And Vecchioni figures out, if you impugn this fight, you've impugned Mike Tyson. If you impugn Mike Tyson, you impugn boxing as a whole. If you do that, you've just taken a billion-dollar industry and wrecked it. So nothing could go wrong. Nobody could call him on it. Because, again, if, if an investigation took place, boxing would happen which means that Mike Tyson, having just earned more money than any fighter in history in the sporting event that at that point was the biggest money earner in history too, would have to be out of business. So everything has to be good. And that's how they did it. I've got just one more boxing question here before we uh, maybe turn back to, to music for a moment. Just something I'm curious about. Have you ever read W.C. Hines' The Professional? And what did you think of it, if so? I did read it. Um, and as boxing books go, I liked it. You know, um, I, I, I think Heinz is a, one of the only boxing writers who's not bad at all. You know, it's, it's sentimental, it's sappy, uh, it's dated. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't remember it that well. It's been many, many years, but I thought it was okay. It's pretty high praise coming from you. Well, you know, nobody, nobody can write about boxing. Uh, I've got a few friends who do it pretty well. And Tim, I know you've done it. And you do it well. But, you know, people write about it as if it has something to do with heroism or, you know, I mean, I just did a movie. I did a, a terrible movie. I'm going to say I'm going to do a negative ad for a movie that's on Showtime right now that I'm in uh, called Pariah about Sonny Liston. Terrible movie. And the director says to me, one of the questions he asks me is, in 
the climate that Sonny Liston came up in, do you think that one of the only options available for a poor black man in America is to go into boxing? And I said, you know, is one of the only options available for a poor black man to win the Powerball? Is it to be, you know, a, a major rock star? What are you talking about? First of all, let's start by the fact that you have to be a genius to be, you know, the heavyweight champion. Well, we'll start there. But the notion is that, like, you know, all black men have it in them to be great prize fighters. Um, you know, and that's the kind of thinking that people do about boxing, this naive, unnuanced, and really racist thinking. There's there's that. And I also think one of the problems with writing about any kind of prize fighting, boxing, MMA, is exactly as you lay out in the book and as you've, you've laid out in, in, you know, a lot of fantastic articles over the years, it's not a sport. It's not, it, you know, it's not Olympic pole vaulting where you have a, a, a more or less measured competition where people are just trying to go and pole vault very well and, and go on with their lives. Uh, a prize fighting setup where it was just people competing to see who was the best boxer would be fascinating, but that's, not what it is. There's this intricate inner game. There's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of spectacle involved. There's a lot of conflicting agendas. Of course, you have people just going out and boxing, but it exists within this very difficult to describe context that's more complicated than somebody just taking someone in the back room and saying, you know, you're going to go down in the fifth because guys got money on this. That's not really what happens. They're existing in this complicated set of dynamics that isn't pure sport and yet you have people imposing narratives on it uh as if it were and i guess the thing that always confuses me is i can't tell if people are too dumb to know that or if they just they do know better and they still feel it just serves their ends better to write about it as if it was this pure meritocracy that that's what confuses me but Either way, it turns out pretty bad. I think that's that's the locus of of bad boxing writing. Is any writing is dishonesty? Yeah, and I, you know, I don't know. Or naivety. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think I, I think it's naivete mostly, and then also just a a kind of longing, you know, a really childish longing for people to behave in a, a really um, really circumscribed. No, you know, what, what, what's the circumscribed notion of, of nobility? You know, again, not taking into account um, the conditions that exist in living. You know, that, um, you know, you take a beating, for example, that there's nobility in that. Well, no, there really isn't, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm all for brave fighters. Okay, that's fine. But, um, you know, there's this notion of what, Boxers owe. And I always figure boxers don't owe you shit. You know, uh, they owe their families. They owe themselves. They owe, you know, and boxing writers are, are really big on that. And, you know, people who follow it, this, this kind of uh, really sentimental notion of what's actually going on. And as you said, it's, it's incredibly complex and nuanced and it, there, there are so many more gray areas in black and white, and, and almost all boxing depiction is done in black and white. 
and it play, like like Harry was saying, we should we should bring this back to music. But that story you were talking about earlier with Sonny Rollins is a great example of that in a different way. Where um, the way I would like the world to work, and I think the most people, the way most people would like the world to work, and the way I think a lot of people pretend the world works. Sonny Rollins, you know, this magnificent, unparalleled improviser should have been going out getting the best musicians he could play with to make the best art possible. And I'm sure that was part of his calculation, you know, and at various points in his career, he did play with wonderful players and just play for art. But at the time you encountered him, he was trying to get people to play with him while he was touring, who he could pay as little as possible while presenting something that was plausible as you know, as the Sonny Rollins uh, experience and that kind of commercial dynamic, you know, powers things a lot more than I think a lot of people would like it to. And, and more to the point, a lot more than they would be willing to admit. There was, there was, there's a great riff in the book where you talk about how Miles Davis, like a lot of the power of Miles Davis is that he was always transforming and at a certain point it became irrelevant, whether he was, transforming towards something that was better than what he'd been doing before the point became the transformation itself. So, um, you know, he clearly at one point gets into fusion because he's following his teen drummer and he just sees that's where, that's where things are going. That's his next change. Whether the music will be any better than what he had been doing immediately prior to that, which, you know, I personally think is like the peak of his powers was just kind of, beside the point um you know i would guess largely because of a commercial imperative like that's one of the reasons he stayed relevant as a public figure for so long like well past the point where he, you know given up playing anything useful was because he understood that that power of constant transformation and, and you know just that he was in a business well it's the miles is a strange case in point i think you know, I think Miles is one of the few musicians who probably made most of his decisions predicated on the music. First of all, he, he always made a ton of money. Um, and I don't think he was looking to get cheap musicians, you know, or play something that, you know, th- that the kids would like. I think Miles really was one of those guys who was restless mm-hmm. and had an art- artistic, uh, restless art. Uh, yeah, and I wasn't trying to, impugn- I, I wasn't trying to ascribe your description of him in a, in a way that would impute cynical motives to him. Basically. It's just that that desire for transformation was clearly driving him in a really serious way. Well, yeah, but I mean, that makes so much sense. And, you know, if you've articulated something, you finished it, you know, and the idea of repeat, I mean, one of the reasons why I don't, you know, in recent years, the only, I've only played with a couple of people in the last decade or so. Um, I played with Ornette Coleman, quite a bit for a while. And I played with Evan Parker, who was a great, great saxophone player from, from England. And he's, he's one of the people I've always wanted to work with. And we did. We made a bunch of albums. We did a bunch of concerts. You know, I love him. And he's my favorite living saxophone player. But I never want to play with him again. Because <laughs> we would play the same thing. You know, we, we'd do it better or we'd do it worse, but we would do the same thing. We've articulated that language. It's done. And I think Miles was big on that. I think, you know, Miles went through, Miles and Duke went through these phases where they just, you know, I mean, you think about Duke Ellington, for example, you know, he was born in the 19th century and plays with Coltrane, convincingly plays with Coltrane. Well, I mean, that's a restless 
artistic temperaments to be able to do that. What do you think of the uh, Mal Waldron, Steve Lacey duets? Because th- that stuff I listen to and I feel like they're just, I don't always understand it, but they're never playing the same shit and they're actually listening to each other and responding. Yeah, no, I, I love those duets. Um, you know, they're both minimal, minimalists and uh, they, they have unbelievable powers of concentration, each one of them, and they both listen. That's a, that's a great duet and their groups together are great. And Steve solo playing was fantastic. Um, as a matter of fact, he was living in Brookline, a couple of miles from where I live at the end of his life. And so we were going to record. Oh, I would have loved to have heard that. I, I can't even imagine what we would have played like, cause we're polar opposites. <laughs> you know, I just played lots and lots of notes and he plays very few notes, but I found out about his, being dead because I went to England and I ran into Evan Parker and I said, Oh, I'm about to record with Steve Lacey. And he said, Steve Lacey just died. Oh my God. So I wound up recording with Evan Parker instead, but uh, you know, Steve Lacey got really lucky in the sense that he found a worldwide audience who understood what, what he does, you know? Um, And uh, he never had to do anything that he didn't want to do. Just, you know, brilliant musician, brilliant guy. Um, interestingly enough, the last time I saw him, I saw him, we had dinner at a friend's house. And the thing that we both agreed to listen to was Errol Garner. We, we, it turns out we are both big Errol Garner fans. Do you have any regrets about the work you did different points in your life? For, for the mob and for gangsters, and how do you square that with your vegetarianism? Um, it depends on specifically which work you're you're talking about. I mean, by the way, just just to be clear, it's veganism. Not uh, I've been a vegetarian for fifty five years, fifty fifty six years, but a vegan for you know a, a long time, but not that long. Um, but what set you on that path? Oh, I had, you know, I'm not somebody who has epiphanies. I don't. I mean, you know, the world doesn't work that way. But I had an epiphany. When I was uh, in my early teens, I was staying up late one night. I was watching a movie called Mondo Kane. I don't know if you guys know it. Mm-hmm. It's, it, was a, it was a kind of cult film in, from the early 60s that focused on kind of unusual rights in various places in the world. And it was this kind of sensationalist film, and not really a very good film. But you know, but people who practiced unusual habits. And there was a scene, and I think it was in Samoa, but um, it's been a long time, where there were puppies in a cage, and these people were patting the puppies in the cage. And it turns out they were picking their dinner. And I said, okay, well, look, if if they can't tell the difference between their brothers and their sisters and 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 food then I can't tell the difference either. So from now on, everything that's living is my brother and my sister. That's it. I'm never going to eat this stuff again. And I never did. You read about doing collections, not necessarily violently as it's described in the book. You know, you help the singer, as Tim mentioned, get his legs broken. So I'm just trying to understand how those two things square. They don't. They don't. Um, no, I mean, I did a lot of things that were wrong. And those things were wrong. Um, 
you know, fight, I thought maybe, you know, fight fixing. For, I, I believe in fight fixing. I don't think that, that was wrong. I would do it again. I would do more of it. I'd do it better. But no, you know, what happens is if you're in a situation in your own life where you're not doing well, you come up with all kinds of reasons, all kinds of justifications for doing all, a lot of things that you shouldn't be doing. So I, I absolutely should not. I mean, you know, the way I justified collecting for the mob, for example, is I was a diplomat. You know, I was the guy who was going to keep these guys from getting hurt. I was the guy who was going to keep the situation from escalating to the point of violence. And there was a time when somebody like me would have been a dime a dozen because the people who were loan sharks, you know, again, weren't prompted by watching mob movies or watching The Sopranos. You know, they wanted to get their money and they wanted the person to continue being a customer, ideally. So what you try and do is you try and minimize damage. So that's how I justified what I was doing. I thought, well, you know, if it's not me, it's going to be somebody else, this guy. And I know this guy and he's going to, you know, he's going to break legs first or he's going to shoot the guy in the arm. Or, you know, he's going to do something else. And maybe I can just have a conversation with this guy and it'll be resolved and nobody gets hurt. I get paid. But that's wrong. The, the fact is that's wrong. Being a loan shark. You know, I mean, I hate to judge other people, you know, because I'm not somebody who knows. Right. I, I'm not a I'm not the last word on right and wrong. But from my experience, being a loan shark is not a good thing to be, you know, um, it's not a good thing to do to other people. When you describe that, it makes a lot of sense to me that you've kept music uh, pure for yourself. You play several hours a day. You, you know, have chosen, you know, generally not to play in public for a very long time. That's separate. That's an area where you're not going to make compromises. That said, I'm curious about who you choose to play with when you've played at people, you know, when you've played with people at the level of the people you've, you've played with. You know, a Parker, a Coleman, a Rollins. Uh, you know, you, you talk about a lot of people in the book who who you've played with. How do you not make a compromise there? You know, when you're deciding whether to play uh, with somebody. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but before we started recording, you talked about how you're maybe thinking about a, putting a new group together. What's kind of the thought process there, as as far as maintaining standards, keeping things on the level of, of, you know, what you're, what you're accustomed to. Well, you know, I don't do very many things and I don't do very many things well at all. So for example, if somebody paid me a lot of money to write, I don't consider myself a writer. You know, I wrote a book and I write some occasionally, but I don't, I don't think about, you know, I don't practice writing. I don't work with writing. I don't, you know, um, so if somebody said, well, here's, um, you know, $500,000 as an advance, you know, write this piece of garbage book. Will you do it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll do it. <laughs> I'm happy to do it. Um, you know, I, I didn't do it this time. I, I really did write the best book I could, but, but of course nobody gave me $500,000 either. But, you know, in terms of music, uh, and this is going to sound just terrible, but I'll say it anyway. I can really play. You know, I. It's true. I've heard you. Yeah. And so I take it seriously. I, you know, I, 
I don't want to. You know, it was the one thing I was given. I was given this ability, and I've got a work ethic that is commensurate with the ability. So I don't play around with it. It may be the only thing I, I do that I don't play around with and won't play around with, because it might be the only thing I've got. So I just decided, and, and there's no upside to it. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing I can play that's going to reward me enough to even think about it. You know, what can I get? Really nothing. So I'm good. In a way, I, I, you know, i got a lot of freedom here because I can just do whatever I feel like doing. But uh, here's something interesting. At least I think it's interesting. My playing, my serious playing, is so difficult that what I found is that people talk about, and I've gotten a lot of this lately, he's a world-class jazz piano player. World class, over and over, he's a world-class piano player. And then some of them, the more you know, intrepid ones, will say, oh, I'd, I'd love to hear what you do. And then they, I said, well, you know, it's, it's available. I mean, there's, there's, there are concerts online. You can find it, but here you go. And I get, oh, that was great. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Nobody, I mean, it's a lot easier to talk about me being world-class jazz piano player than to hear me play. And we hear you play for just a few minutes. Is that possible? Because a- a- after this conversation, I think anyone who's listened to the last hour and should absolutely pick up the book they may have already heard you, but I'm sure those who have and those who have not would, would love to get just a, a taste of what you're about right now. I'll do that, but you're, you're going to lose a lot of listeners. And uh, I mean, this is, you know, but sure, sure, I'll give you, uh, I'll play for a minute or so. Will that do? I would love that. Thank you. I'm going to move over here. So you, I'm going to move out of sight for a second. <clears throat> Mob wouldn't go for that, but I made sure that they liked what I played too. So you're you're telling me that uh, mob mob patrons wouldn't be into things that sound completely like you, but also bring up everything from Art Tatum to Cecil Taylor in a in a just a minute of running through things. They wouldn't they wouldn't go for that, and they and they shouldn't. You know, I'm I'm <laughs> with them. Um, and the fact is. Given a choice, I wouldn't play the way I play. You know, that's the voice I got, 
And so that's the voice I use. But, you know, if I could, you know, I, I could do it, but I, you know, Grant Green, I love Grant Green. You know, I, I could listen to Grant Green all day and I can listen to myself, you know, for a short period of time. But that's what I, that's, that's the voice. But anyway, you know, I've decided to go back to not even playing that, that but to um, reconstructing jazz, reconfiguring jazz. Um, you know, which I think of as an obsolete form of music. It, it probably is in a lot of ways. So I think we're going to have to be winding down here in a bit. I always, whenever I talk to anybody, like to ask them what hasn't come up that should have come up. You know, is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about or that you were waiting for us to bring up? Um, no, not necessarily. The only thing I would say is, you know, one of one of the things that I tried to do with the book, and I, I really had problems with it because I didn't want the book to have an arc. I'm not interested in that. Uh, which my agent, my publicist, everyone tells me I'm making a big mistake not doing. It's one of the things I love about it. It's a very uncompromising book. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't impose the the fake narratives we were just talking about that shitty boxing writers uh, impose on the world. On the I, that's what I was hoping. Yeah. Well, you know, I I got that from. And this is the point I want. I got that from being around dogs a lot, and being and also Coltrane, late period Coltrane, which is vertical instead of horizontal, you know. And I, I like the idea of things existing entirely in the moment, not going anywhere. And so, the one thing that I I would sort of like to talk about is that. Um, you know, I've lived a wayward life, and I'm hoping that although the book doesn't move particularly, at the end there's at least a suggestion that I've learned some things, and that I'm not the person that I was, and that you can change. And to me, that's sort of important because I mean, I spent a lot of my life not being a very good guy, and I'm not saying I'm a good guy now necessarily. And you guys have both had your run-ins with me. And, uh, you know, um, they're not illegal runners, but, you know, I can be difficult. I mean, you know, you're both fun to get into that stuff with. But, um, but you know, I, I think, I think the, the ending, which has to do with my dog, you know, meditating with my dog, um, is a very important place for me to have wound up. Mm -hmm. And it's because I've learned a few things. and. There are things that I've done I would never do now. It's not big. It's not dramatic. It's not a you know, and it, it's not earth changing for anybody, even for me. But it suggests that we can, we can evolve. We can grow, you know, if we if we pay attention a little bit. So I don't know if I want to talk about that, but I I don't you know I want to at least mention it. So closing question here, and thank you again for. Uh an hour and change of very interesting conversation. Oh, thank you. Two, two, two things in the book, maybe a decade apart, I'd like to just ask you about. Um, there, there's a relatively brief section covering the 80s where you're in Vegas and a story in the course of that with being at the Golden Palomino and meeting this uh, singer, Vanessa, who's remarkably talented 
uh, in a marriage of convenience with a, uh, she's from Germany, a black American GI and sort of finds you in the casino. It's like, Oh, you're a musician. Can you help? And, uh, talk with her, you hear her sing, and then she just sort of goes. Later in the book, when you're a boxing promoter, there's a good stretch about Tyrone Booz, who's a fighter you work with, help advance his career, queerly like, and then uh, later in his life, after that's done, he has a stroke. He's partly paralyzed, I think. He can't speak all that well. And just sort of uh, losing the connection with him, even as your mutual friend, uh, Gordon Marino, written for Me at the Beast, by the way, stays in touch. And and as you were talking about story arcs and trying to resist those and and tell these very touching and then then severed narratives uh, that make me think of the end of uh, Leonard Cohen's Chelsea Hotel number two. That's all. I don't think of you that often. And then it just ends. I'm curious if, if you have, in the course of going back and writing about this and thinking about those chapters of your life, any regrets there? Or to the contrary, as you were saying about boxers and they're not owing anyone shit, that you felt you were there when you were in some capacity to do so. And then that capacity ended and just, just moving on was, was right. Just as you're looking back on your own life, are these uh, points you regret or, or, or simply things that happened? Or, or would you frame it otherwise? I, I wish, I wish. I had a more, you know, if I had a sort of more Buddhist take on it, I could see them as things that just happened. And if I were more evolved, maybe I would, but I don't. Uh, I regret them terribly. There were people who counted on me in certain ways. And, you know, those are certainly by no means the only examples. And for a variety of reasons, uh, often largely, for expedience. I lost touch. And uh, I'm very sorry about that. You know, I'm Tyrone Booth is somebody I love. He's part of my family. And I haven't talked to him. You know, Gordon, Gordon keeps up, which is great. And Gordon's a wonderful, you know, one of my one of my favorite people. Um, and a great writer. But I, you know, you decide what what price you can afford to pay. And sometimes you don't make the best decision. You know, you don't make the biggest decision. You pay what you can pay. So. And I think that's, uh, that's something we all deal with is, you know, I've personally dealt with, you know, over the last year and a half getting locked in your house uh, makes you make some decisions about, uh, you know, other people you need to get in touch with um, or people you have to say things to, or do you want to leave that door closed and, Sometimes you reach out to them and there's stuff to say, and sometimes it's not, doesn't make any sense to reach out. And sometimes you do, and there's nothing to say. And it's all, you know, it's all complicated. And I think one of the really great things about the book, which I hope every listener goes and goes and buys and reads because it's fantastic is the way it really wrestles very honestly with that. And it doesn't put any patness or sentimentality on it, which is, something I don't think you'd be capable of doing. So I'm happy you didn't try. Well, thank you for saying that. That means a lot to me. Charles, thank you so much for taking the time. The book is Low Life, A Memoir of Jazz, Fight Fixing, and the Mob. It's it's truly an engrossing read. Uh, Believe it or not, we just scratched the uh, surface of the stories that are in there. 
And I hope we'll talk again. And um, maybe if the money's right, that uh, we may even get to read more of your writing. Oh, that sounds great. Harry, Tim, this is, this is sensational. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. It was Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and undisclosed locations. A special thank you to our guest this week, Charles Farrell, author of Low Life. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be well, we'll talk to you soon, and enjoy summer. <laughs>